Good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Just kidding. That's all we're going to talk about that. Okay. So uh, I, I want to start this morning with a small confession, and that is that I am kind of a sucker for top 10 lists. Uh, love them. I can normally scroll past other clickbait like article headlines, but if you give me a good top 10 list, I'm going to check it out. And I don't know uh, if I'm fascinated because it, they're subjective, and so I want to get in an argument with the person who wrote the list, uh, or if I just think it's fun to see somebody's thoughts on like the, the top 10 worst movies ever made, but I, but I love them. And uh, for some of the older generation, you may have also fallen in love with top 10 lists because of David Letterman. Does anybody here like top 10 lists as much as me, do they think? Okay, some of you, that's great. Um, so, but my uh, a love for them was not started by good old Dave Letterman. It was started uh, when I was a kid in middle school and high school. And my favorite part of the morning, because mornings are terrible and not from the Lord, uh, are getting a bo- was getting a bowl of cereal and sitting down and watching the uh, Sports Center top ten. And it would always play at the end of the hour, and I'd be able to watch it and then get in the car and head to school. But man, this was the highlight of my morning, unless they put a hockey play at number one, which is just stupid, because that's never a number one play. Um, but I just, I loved watching the top ten, and and that has definitely continued. And, and today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the most important, most influential top ten list ever, God's top ten, the Ten Commandments. And so... Uh, people have talked about the Ten Commandments as kind of the foundation of all Western laws and civilization. That's a bold statement to make, I know. But uh, it, Teddy Rose, a good old Teddy, said the nation should be ruled by the Ten Commandments. And, and so in America, you often will see them in you know, courts or we used to put them in classrooms. And it used to be all over the place. It's like, this is the top ten. This is the most important one. And so... I would just say that since they've been around for a long time, and if you're a believer, that you should all have the top 10 commandments memorized. So if I was just going to say, I'm going to call somebody up on stage this morning and have them say the 10 commandments in order, how many of you just in your heart feel confident that you could do that? I see you, Jeff Vogel. Don't think that I'm not going to call on you. All right. Chocolate? Anything? No, you're a liar. All right. So uh, I would say, so about 10 years ago, they asked probably a slightly more biblically literate American culture, uh, just the believers, how many of you could do it? And it was about 20%. And I would guess that we are lower than that now. And so this morning, I am going to treat you like children, okay? In our preschool ministry right now, um, you know, if you're doing the reading plan, the daily devotional with us, the whole church is reading the same scripture, which is awesome. Um, and so in preschool, they're teaching through the Ten Commandments, and in order to help them memorize it, they have hand motions. And so this morning, I am going to teach you the hand motions of the Ten Commandments, so we're going to memorize them together, okay? Who's excited about that? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, Warning, the 5 o'clock service last night started slow but did really well at the end, so I'm expecting more even though it's earlier in the morning because you are my favorite service. So don't tell anybody else. Okay, before we get into the actual top 10, uh, I think it's important we set the context. So for those of you who are reading again in the Daily Devotional this week, I'm going to sum up what you already read, which is, if you remember last week, Joe ended with the Passover 
And so we have a million plus Israelites now that are headed out of Egypt into the wilderness. A wilderness, just think about it, none of them know because all they've known is slavery in Egypt their whole lives. And so they, they are headed out into an unknown foreign place. And God, however, the Yahweh God that they just saw do 10 crazy, insane plagues in Egypt to free them, Yahweh God goes before them and leads them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, which imagine how awesome it would be to follow a pillar of fire at nighttime. And that God leads them to the Red Sea. And a Red Sea that seems like when you come up with a million plus people and you got kids and you got livestock and you're thinking, how are we going to cross this? And then the Egyptian army comes up behind them wanting to kill them. And the Israelites start to freak out. And the God that has been before them uh, moves behind them, right? And protects them from the Egyptians as they cross the Red Sea. And he parts the Red Sea and there's this miraculous intervention. And then God removes his presence and the Egyptians go to the Red Sea and they're wiped out. And so if you're an Israelite, whoever this Yahweh God is, who you've really only known for a month or two, is pretty awesome. You get to the other side of the Red Sea and you start to wander through the wilderness. And we saw this week how God, when the Israelites whined about not having enough food, how God provided quail and manna. And then when they whined about being thirsty, God split open a rock and brought water for them. And it wasn't just like a, like a drinking fountain. It was like, there's a million plus people that need water. And God brought that out of a rock, which is incredible. And so he leads them to now where we're at today, the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's really here, Mount Sinai, in between Egypt that they left and the promised land that they're going to, that God wants to, he wants to basically he t- take a break, reveal who he is to the Israelites, and form them into his people and his nation. That's his desire. And so it's a really big, important place in, in Israelite history and Christian history. And so, man, for years we've wanted to know which mountain is Mount Sinai. Like, archaeologists have wanted to know, believers have wanted to know. And so I'm going to I'm not going to have time to really go into the arguments of this because my talk is already too long. Uh, but this is the traditional site of Mount Sinai. There, there, there's a, a monastery or a, a convent at the bottom of this. It's the one that's been believed for a long time. But recently, in the last 10 years, there's another mountain uh, in the Arabian Peninsula that people have thought, no, I really think this is it. It has, like, you can see blackened rocks on the top. Spoiler alert, when God comes and visits him at Mount Sinai, he comes in fire, right, and burns everything, and there's smoke. And so they think, oh, well, maybe, you know, that's where the blackened rock comes from. And then nearby, there's this rock, which has a really big split in it. And so you're just thinking, oh, okay, maybe this was the rock that God split. Maybe this is Mount Sinai. But whether or not this is the actual one, we won't know until heaven. I want you to get in your head, this is a picture of what Mount Sinai looked like. It's not the snow-capped, beautiful Colorado peaks that I used to think of when I thought of Mount Sinai. This is about seven to 8,000 both of these mountains are about seven to 8,000 feet tall, okay? So a million plus people come to the base of this mountain, and God says to Moses, in three days, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to talk to the Israelites. So for three days, clean yourselves up, consecrate yourselves, do what you need to do, and three, so they do that, Israelites do that for three days. Three days later, they show up. God comes on Mount Sinai. And scripture says that Mount Sinai was covered in smoke, that God came as fire, right? So 
the mountain is burning on fire, surrounded by smoke, and then out of the smoke, there's thunder and lightning, and then a trumpet blast that was so loud it shook the mountain, okay? So again, God just announcing himself to the Israelites, like, hey, I'm kind of a big deal, all right? And the Israelites, understandably afraid, but out of this cacophony of like sound and light and craziness, God speaks his top 10 to the entire nation of Israel, all million plus of them at the same time in his incredible voice. And he says this, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. This is the first thing God says to them. And I, it's important because uh, what he picks out to introduce himself is that he brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, right? Out of the house of slavery. Uh, he doesn't say, you know, I created, I'm the Lord your God, I created the world. Abraham, your forefather, I met him. He, he just focuses on you were in slavery and I brought you out of that. And so I do believe for us, as we get to the end and we think about how we relate to the Ten Commandments, it's important for us to remember that God is giving the rules to what freedom looks like. Like You were enslaved, and I saved you out of that, and now here's what it looks like to be in a free society. And so that's his intro, and then we get into the first one. And now God did not have, you know, the desire to go from 10 to 1, like most top 10 lists do. Uh, God just started with the most important thing. And like any other top 10 list, there is a priority, right? There is importance. And so he starts with this. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. Take your finger. This is number one. This is the first commandment. Okay. Here we go. And you just lift it up. This is the easiest one. So if you screw this one up, you're in trouble. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. Yeah, let's maybe do it together because you're... Wake up, people. All right. We're just going to, we'll shorten it for you because I know you're tired. No gods before me. No gods before me. There's only, thank you. That's great. You could, that's great. Yeah. Okay. One God, right? There's one God. And the reason that this was most important is not only because this is where everything starts, right? But it's because they were leaving Egypt, polytheistic Egypt with a God for everything. They were going to pagan worshiping Canaan with the child sacrifice and the cult prostitution and the insane polytheism of Canaan. And out of a world that was polytheistic, God was introducing monotheism, one God religion. And it was countercultural and crazy. And the Israelites would not have known what to do with it at first. But God's saying, Everything that you've known and believed is false about how God works. There is one God, and I am, I am him. Okay? Now, I don't know about you. I have never been in my life tempted to put other gods before Yahweh. Like, I've never been tempted to uh, worship Allah. I've never been tempted to worship Buddha. Um, and I think what we're going to do with all of these commandments and what we're going to do with this one is we're going to move from that mindset of ours that wants to check a box that we've done something right. So for those of you who are super into to-do lists, you could look at the Ten Commandments and be like, for the ones you do, check, 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 and feel good about yourself. But in reality, what we're going to do is we're going to move to the heart of each of these commandments. So what was a temptation for an Israelite to worship a Baal or an Asherah or a Horus or a Ra or another god? It was merely that, that what they believed in that time was that those gods were the answers to all of their practical problems. So did you have struggle with your harvest? 
You just need to worship Baal better because Baal's the god of the harvest. You and your spouse are not able to have a child. Well, you need to worship Asherah because she will give you a child. And so every time they came up against something that was difficult or that they didn't understand, they would create a god to worship for it because it gave them a sense of control over something that they had no control over. And that sounds like something we do today. So every time we come up against a struggle, whether it's that we are unemployed and we can't find a job or we cannot find a spouse or we cannot get pregnant, we turn to other things for our comfort, for our source of life, for our source of happiness and joy. Whether that is we pour ourselves into our career or we focus on our kids or we focus on a substance or an experience uh, in any way that we turn to something other than Yahweh God for our life's joy and purpose. We are putting another God before Yahweh. And so the summary of the heart side of this is just to say that nothing and no one else should get your worship. Okay, that's number one. Here's number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay? So we generally sum this up as you shall not make idols or bow down to them. So we have two. This is number two. Two ones here. It's very simple. You shall not make for yourselves idols or bow down to them. Do not bow down to this idol that you make. Okay? Good. Um, Again, I'm guessing if you're sitting here, you've never been tempted to make like a little figurine and worship it, right? Just not something we've ever done. Um, Well, that I've ever done. So what's the temptation for the Israelites? Like what is God, what's the heart of what God's getting at? And that is similar to the first one. In fact, these two first commandments are so similar that Jewish people and the Catholics combine them into the first commandment, Okay. But for us, we Protestants, we separate it out. And the heart of it is that what you do when you make an idol is you take what you believe to be a supernatural, huge God, and you make it into something small, something you can fit in your pocket, something, again, that gives you the sense of control and tangible that you can wrap your arms around, wrap your hands around, right? And just makes God more palatable, more easier for you. And any ways that we, we do that as well is ways that we take And this is why Yahweh didn't want this, but any ways that we take the God who created the universe, who is in charge of everything and sovereign over all of history, and we make him into something that is comfortable and easy for us to interact with. In reality, God is earth-shatteringly, insanely huger, bigger, better, holier than us, and we should, when we come into his presence, feel the reverence and awe that comes with that. And so some some ways that we try to do this, I think, are um, when we— this is the one that I'm probably the most afraid that I will do, is we come into the Bible, we read Scripture. We read the way that God reveals himself and who he reveals himself to be, and it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us think that, man, God would not fit well into our culture today. God does not say the things that our culture says. And so what we do is we'll nuance or change Scripture to kind of fit what we believe God should be. 
or we'll, we'll kind of dumb down the words and make it less offensive um, to, the, to the world. But that's kind of the scariest part. The, the other part is like, I do this with God. I did this growing up when I treated God like Santa, right? When I thought God was watching me and was checking whether I was naughty or nice. And if I was nice, he would reward me. And if I was naughty, he would punish me, right? And so basically, God is like, uh, the poster child, or Santa is like the poster child for like works-based righteousness and karma, and I would just treat God like that. But it made me feel comfortable because it, it made me be able to control what God was going to do. So if I did something good, God would give me something. If I did something bad, God would punish me. A way that we see this reflected in art is that so many different cultures have different pictures of Jesus because they're based on their own ethnicity. So we read God and Jesus through our own lens, and we remake him in our own image. So any ways that we make God into who we want him to be instead of who he is, is making an idol out of Yahweh. And God says, do not do that. Okay, that was two. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Who takes his name in vain. Okay, number three, you're just going to take three fingers right here and you're going to put them over your mouth, okay? Don't do it. As a Christian kid growing up in a Christian household, uh, if I had ever said the three words, oh my God, I would have gotten spanked, 100%, okay? I knew that oh my God was not okay to say because it was taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, I generally thought that if I just wasn't saying, oh my God, that I was good on this one. So I would check the box. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I don't know how many times I told somebody else that was a peer. You can't say, oh my God, don't do it. Instead, I went with, oh my gosh. Okay, way better. Totally different. Absolutely still great. Okay. And we do this, obviously, in Christianity. We create all kinds of Christian curse words. I have all of them. Um, and in reality, the Hebrew of this is not like, don't say the word God, but it's like, do not use the name of God uselessly. There's two kind of, two kind of um, definitions, uselessly or falsely. Okay, so yes, throwing around, oh my gods, is using God's name uselessly. So you should be careful of how you're just throwing God's name around. But there's a much deeper heart issue behind this. And that is, in, in so many ways, we use the reputation and name of God to support ourselves when we need it. And so if we need to bolster our reputation because people are doubting us or doubting what we're going to do, we might say, I swear to God, or as God is my witness, like I will do this. Or sometimes, I mean, we use it to uh, uh, defend our motives if our motives are being questioned. For like people in ministry, we hear this a lot, which is like, if somebody's asking you why you're doing something, you, you might just say, well, I really feel like God is leading me to do this, or I really feel like God told me I should do this, which, by the way, God does that all the time. But if you just use God's name because you don't want people questioning your motives, that's using God's name falsely or uselessly. And then the worst way that this happens and the most destructive is when people in, in terms of spiritual authority use their relationship with God to condone their evil actions. And so this is the evil of the Crusades done in God's name. This is the evil of slavery defended from the Bible. This is the evil of the spiritual or sexual abuse of the church done by people who 
when somebody would say, this is clearly wrong, say, no, 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 I, I am an authority and I know God and God says that this is what should happen. And the reason that God makes this a big deal and says, I'm not going to hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain is that when we misuse the name of God, we tarnish the reputation of God because a name is tied to a reputation. And so Israel is about to go to Canaan, right? To these people that don't know Yahweh. And when they misuse and mistreat the name of God or they use it and they do evil, the people in Canaan will say, I don't want anything to do with this Yahweh God. Look at how his people are acting. And haven't you seen, I'm sure if you have interacted with people who do not believe in God or don't trust the Bible, today you've probably seen this, right? People who do not believe because of the Crusades or because of slavery or because of ways they've seen Christians use the name of God and then do evil in it. And they say, I don't want any part of that. To a world that wants any excuse not to submit to God, misusing God's name is one way to give them an excuse. And so God says, do not do that and trade on my reputation. And so do not use God's name for your benefit is kind of the heart behind you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay, we are, need to speed it up a little bit. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Excuse me. So we got four. This is number four. We're going to make a little pillow, and we're going to take a rest. Okay? Super cute seeing all the preschoolers do that. Actually, even cuter seeing you adults do this. Um, and this is, this is how I normally think of Sabbath growing up, right? Okay, it's a day of rest, no work, I get to do whatever I want, right? TV, video games, like football, uh, this is awesome. However, uh, God's rest that he talks about here, and he talks about the Sabbath a ton, right, in the Old and New Testament, is that it's supposed to be rest, but with a purpose, right? It's not supposed to be the self-help, like, just fill yourself up, do whatever you want to do, and check out. It is supposed to be a reminder that you are dependent upon God for everything, that he's the one that gave you everything. And this is easy for Israel to understand because they're dependent upon their livestock and the harvest and all of these things that you can't just take a day off from. Like farmers know this. You can't just take a day off and not feed your animals. You can't take a day off and not take care of what's growing inside of your garden. All right, but God's desire for them was, okay, do you remember who brought you out of slavery? You remember the quail? You remember the manna? You remember the water? Do you trust me? Because the more you don't stop and don't remember these things, the more you're going to get swept up in the busyness and the uh, control and the I am building my own kingdom and I have to continue to work to do that and keep it afloat. You're going to forget that you are totally and utterly dependent upon me. And so... The Sabbath is about resting in order to remind yourself who is really in control. It's why we come here on our Sabbath, right, uh, is to remind ourselves to worship the one who's really in control. We need, we need this reminder to take a break as bad as the Israelites do, right? In our culture of workaholism, generally, we also desperately need this. And so this is the first four. The first four are generally gathered together because they are the ways in which we relate to God, 
Okay, and so if we don't get the first four right, the next six don't matter because they will not be done out of a heart that is honoring God. And so let's stop for a second. Let's do a review, okay? The first commandment, no gods before. Okay, well, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is you're doing way worse than five o'clock service. The good news is it's not too late, okay? Uh, No gods before me. Do not make or bow down to idols. Do not take the name of the Lord your God and verb. Remember the Sabbath. Good. Uh, <laughs> that's good summary. Rest. That's great. Okay. So we move from these four into the, the next six, and the six are about um, man, how, do we re- how do we interact with each other? God's desire was to make a nation that was different, that was set apart. So how do we do that in the ways that we treat each other? And it starts with a family because the family is the building block, the stabilizing factor of any good society. And God starts with, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And uh, for number five here, we're going to do the American Sign Language for father and mother, right? Honor your father and mother. And for some of you, it's easy to do this because you have a father and mother who are great, raised you well, and you love them. And for some of you, this seems impossible because you had a father or mother or people who raised you who were dishonorable, who mistreated you, maybe even abused you. And so you come to this commandment and you say, pass. No thanks, God. In reality, this commandment, though, has no exception clauses. Here or the other times it's restated in the Bible, and the question becomes, how do I treat with honor a father and a mother who were dishonorable? And I don't have an easy answer for you. I know in my life when people have mistreated me, the way that I can begin to move past that and treat them well in relationship is to focus on any positive effect that they had on my life. Anything that they did for me that was selfless and to forgive, start to forgive the things that they did that were evil or wicked or mean to me. And so, I mean, I am not offering you a solution here except to say that God, that, that heart side of that where God is saying, honor the people I have put in authority over you even if they weren't the best. And as we become adults and we learn more about how our father and our mother work, hi mom, um, we start to see some of their flaws, right, in new ways. And, and as we have our own kids, it can be a temptation to talk poorly about our father and mother in front of our kids, which I think is like the most dishonoring thing uh, because their relationship and the way they see their grandparents is directly affected by how you talk about your father and mother. And so how do you focus and, and treat well those who have Uh, authority, who God's put in authority over you. That's number five. Number six, you shall not murder. And this is normally where we all take a deep breath and we say, sweet, okay. I can take a break on this one. Haven't done that. Check. Uh, For murder, we're going to do thumb, five fingers. Here's your six. The thumb becomes a shiv right here. Knife, okay. And the five, boom. So don't do this, right? This is not a do this. This is a don't do this, okay? Um, now, I would love to tell you that you could take a break and we'll just skip this one. However, Jesus said differently. So in Matthew 5, you know, he's doing the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said you shall not murder. But I tell you that anybody who is, has anger at his brother or who insults him uh, or who has called his brother Raka, fool, you know, kind of a curse word back then, is in danger of the fire of hell. And so great, can't take a break. 
sadly. Uh, but I think the heart of this is, do you, um, man, do you have such anger towards anybody? Do you have such anger that you have let fester and boil inside of you that you treat or look at somebody else in your life and say that you wish that they did not exist? Yeah, sure, I'm not going to pick up the gun or I'm not going to pick up the knife. I'm not going to do this. But do I ever treat somebody with such disdain and hatred that I wish they didn't exist? This includes not just the people in your life, I would say, but people that you see on TV, maybe politicians. And I think that as you begin to think about this, you're like, oh, this does make me uncomfortable. There were people that I do have this mindset and attitude towards. And Jesus is saying that is the heart evil that needs to be rooted out of you. Good job not actually murdering somebody. However, also think about the heart that would lead you to that. Okay. Do not treat others as if you wish they no longer existed. And number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Okay. We got five little kids. We got a mom and dad here. Okay. Adultery breaks the family. And so we, again, this is confusing. The kids aren't breaking the family. And I had to clarify that, but the family is broken nonetheless, okay? Uh, And Jesus does the same thing with this that he does with murder. Again, I think he chose the ones that we would be like, sweet, haven't committed adultery, so check that box. But Jesus says in the New Testament, any time you look with lustful intentions upon a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. And for a a culture that is... um, Man, it kind of hinges on putting images in front of you and then having you consume them. In our American consumeristic culture, it is easy for us to get into the mindset of whatever I see and want, I, I take. And God is saying, you have, I have drawn strict boundaries around you, and you need to learn how to be faithful to the boundaries that I've given you. Be faithful to the one that God has given you in marriage. And, and it's just beautiful because this is in the context of God's relationship and covenant with Israel, right? So when Israel ran away and, and as he says, hoard after other gods and, and pursued everything except following God, God still remained in faithful relationship with him. And this marriage covenant, this is the, basically the only covenant we make, you know? So be faithful to your marriage covenant like God is faithful to his covenant to us. That's number seven. Number eight. You shall not steal. This one's easy, but also kind of interesting. You got three uh, things here. We got like fish sticks or um, something really important that you want. And you're going to take your five and you're just going to steal it. Okay? Honestly, I don't know what this looks like. Fish sticks is the only thing I come up with at the moment. But if you have a better idea, feel free to tell me. Okay. Because I don't think fish sticks is going to hit a lot of us, you know, right here where it matters. Um, okay. And... I do think that for most of us, we think, okay, I haven't stolen a car. I haven't stolen any money. You know, I, this isn't really one that I struggle with. I'm not a big shoplifter. Um, and so I'm not a big shoplifter. I might be a little shoplifter. Okay. But I, I think, again, the heart of this is that uh, stealing is, what is stealing? Stealing is a shortcut to get what you want at the expense of somebody else, right? Fulfilling your own needs and desires, and you don't really care what happens to the person you steal it from. Now, I struggle with this when it comes to nameless, faceless, large organizations that I don't feel guilty about stealing from. So stealing a Disney Plus password to you know, watch a show because 
Does, is, you know, Disney really going to call me and be upset that I stole that and didn't pay them $8 a month, you know? Or, yes, I'll sneak candy, and I still sneak candy into movie theaters right now. And as I'm saying this, there is that conviction, but then also I'll probably do it again because <laughs> does AMC really need my five fifty for Whoppers? No, they do not, right? That's, this is the process of, ah, I, I tend to, like, squash any... Any heart towards like, yeah, I'm a, th- I'm a thief by saying, who cares? Those people don't even know. Um, in reality, the heart of this is like anytime you try to get what you want and you don't care the effect it has on society or other people, you are shortcutting God's best. And if you continue to do this, if people did this, right, if this was a free-for-all, the fabric of society and the fabric of Israelite Christian society— Sorry, Israelite society would just kind of fall apart. The fabric would be ripped apart. And so the heart of this is, man, don't take the easy way to get what you want and hurt someone else in the process. And we talk about staplers. I don't know why it's always staplers that people give the example, don't steal a stapler from your office. I've never been tempted to steal a stapler at all. But uh, for those of us who maybe struggle in a, uh, with like social, being on social media at work or just like checking out or, you know, there's all kinds of small ways in which we end up stealing uh, that we need to think about, how am I just trying to take an easy way uh, to get what I want? So that's eight. Number nine here is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so this is really originally about like being in court and lying about your neighbor so that they would get punished, right? Or so that you would get off the hook. But um, so we're going to do this. We're going to have four up like we're swearing an oath, right? And on the Bible, five on the Bible. So here's your nine. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this Outside of the courtroom really is just like any way in which you try to tear down your neighbor's reputation and make yourself look better, okay? The summary I'm going to give is do not tear down others' reputation with your words. This really sums up all the New Testament words that Paul uses for this sin. So gossip, reviling, slander, all these ways in which we will talk bad about somebody else to make ourselves feel better. For those of you who struggle with this, you know that there is a power, right, that comes with either having the information or being able to talk, uh, talk bad about somebody else and having the captive audience that listens to you. Uh, right now we have social media, which is a great new vehicle for this old sin that has always existed. So now we can just say it to like thousands of people um, and generally not even have to face any consequences for it. So any ways in which we try to tear down other people and generally to make ourselves feel better with our words goes against the ninth commandment. Number 10 is you shall not covet your neighbor's house Wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And uh, when we talk about the heart of coveting, it blows my mind. Because God had to give this commandment to the Israelites that he just saved out of slavery, right? So he just saved them out of slavery. So he just saved them out of slavery. Slavery. They had nothing. Nothing. He saved them out of that and brought them into the wilderness and provided miraculously for them. And he already had to set as a rule, don't be jealous of other people's stuff. So like, my thought is, how in the world could you just have nothing your whole life and your parents have nothing and your grandparents have nothing for 400 years and then you get out and immediately you start wanting Abimelech's third donkey because you only have two donkeys. Like, who cares about the donkeys? You were a slave. You had nothing. And this is like 40 days later. You know, God's already got to lay this foundational. And then I think about myself and I think, oh, wait. Okay, I was a slave. I had nothing. I was broken. I was uh, condemned to eternal death and hell. Okay, God saved me out of that. And now do I really care if Jim Bob has a bigger house than me? You really care about the extra 500 square foot? 
of this house. You had nothing. You were a slave. You were condemned to die. Why do you care about this? And the heart is be content with a God who saved you, with a God who's given you everything you have. Be content with that. And at the end of these 10 commandments, all right, well, wait, we got to review. 10 right here. Covet, 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 covet. You just want everything. Covet, covet, covet. Okay. So let's review. Again, if you have a preschool kid, you need to quiz them on this when you, when you get home today. But, and if you have an elementary kid, they're learning it, but they might have different hand motions. So no other gods before me shall not make or bow down to idols. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Rest! <laughs> Honor your father and your mother. Ooh, wait, what's six? Oh, yeah, this one. Do not murder, okay? Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, do not bear false witness. Ten, do not covet. Okay, good job. That was really good. As it's better. You did a good job. Okay, Israelites were super pumped about this, right? Jazzed about the Ten Commandments. They worshiped God. They set up an altar. They praised him. Just kidding. They did none of that. They're terrible. So this is what it says right after God gives them his top ten. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. A.K.A. Ah! Moses, go talk to God. We're scared. So Moses goes and talks to God. He gets some more information. He comes down. He tells the Israelites, here's what God wants to do. Do you want to do this? And they all say, yes, 100%, we're in. And Moses says, are you sure? And they again say, we will do all that God has commanded us to do. And God says, Moses, come up here. I got some more stuff for you. So Moses goes up. He's gone for 40 days. 40 days later, the stupid Israelites say, let's melt down all the gold that we got from Egypt. Let's build a calf. Let's worship it. And then let's worship the calf by saying, you're the one that saved us out of Egypt. Are you kidding me? This is always the most confusing story turnaround in the Bible to me. How could you be so stupid that you immediately go back to all this stuff? And the only way I can begin to reconcile this is that if I'm an Israelite, I'm at the bottom of a mountain. I've never been out of Egypt before. I am worried about my food. I have no control over what's happening. I'm completely dependent upon God. What's going to happen? Where's Moses? Why did Moses go? Oh my goodness, I'm so nervous. And the fear and the anxiety, and it ramps up and it ramps up. And so you do the only thing that you know how to do, which is you go back to what you've known that's control, that's safe, that you at least can wrap your hands around. And how many times have we said to God in a moment of worship or revelation from him, yes, God, I will never do that sin again. I will do this. I'll live for you. I'm all in. And then when things get tough or anxious or awkward or difficult, we just say, you know what, though? I'm going to go back to this stupid little sin that gives me just a moment of peace and comfort and reprieve. And we build our own little stupid idol. How many times do we do that? And, and here's the thing. God is not surprised by that because God knows us intimately. He knows we are drawn back to the foolish idols when he has a promised land in front of us. And that was the goal of the Ten Commandments was not to say, here is my standard, so now you can meet it. Now you can be perfect. Here are the rules. In fact, the Paul says that the goal of the Ten Commandments was to let Israel know that they could never meet God's standard. It was a guide, it was a tutor that was supposed to show them that, hey, when you realize that you are a sinner and you cannot do this, here's Jesus. 
It was designed for Israel to say, we need a savior. And the same is true for us today. When we read what we have now, which is more than the Ten Commandments, we have a full revelation of who God is. And when we try to live up to this, we will inevitably fail, right? A hundred percent failure rate. But the key is, what do we do in response to that? Do we turn back to our idols? Do we turn back to our comfort? Do we take the Ten Commandments and do whatever we want with them? Or do we turn to God and say, okay, I understand that you gave me this to realize that. I need a savior. I am dependent upon you for everything. And we turn to Jesus. And it can be tough when we can lose heart. And so I want to close with my favorite passage in the Bible. Just read this for you. This is the author of Hebrews is comparing Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. And he is saying to believers, do not lose heart trying to follow Jesus. And he says it like this. You have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That is the Mount Sinai that is behind us. But here is what is before us. You, believer, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When you lose heart, Look ahead to Mount Zion. The fact that God is desiring to lead you to a place where your belief in Jesus Christ lets you look forward to hanging out with God himself, to a better and new covenant, and innumerable angels and festal gathering, which paraphrase means you are going to party with so many angels you can't count them. And if we can keep our eyes and our focus on that instead of our fear of the unknown or our inability and shame to keep up with God's commandments, that is what we need to motivate us to keep going. So that's my prayer for us this week. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for the Ten Commandments and for revealing yourself to us in that way. Thank you for the whole scriptures that you give us. And God, as we go this week and we um, and encounter our own sin and the ways in which we cannot live up to the heart of the Ten Commandments, God, may we turn to you instead of turning away from you. May we look ahead to what you have promised us and what awaits for us in Mount Zion. Um, God, we lift up uh, the people. I lift up the people in this congregation to you, God. Um, give them joy and purpose this week as they go out in relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.